I'm afraid this morning I'm going to be going back and forth, putting these things on and taking them off, because when I have them on, I can read something, but you're just blurred. And so I'm going to be doing this, and uh, don't let it bother you. I'll try not to let it bother me. I was trying to figure out what to say about some kind of a message for you kids to come up. I couldn't figure it out. So uh, you'll have to put up with just waiting. Uh, If Danny's going to preach next Sunday, you'll probably be coming up then, okay? I also want to say one other word, and... uh, call attention to the fact of really how well those uh, scripture passages have been read this morning. That was very important to me, so thank you guys for a job really well done. Because the the, the sermon this morning really is based on all three passages of scripture. Uh, From Deuteronomy chapter 18 to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, to Mark 1, chapter uh, 1, verse, uh, beginning with verses 21. I will read that now in Jesus' name, and I invite you to stand as we read together. Mark 1, 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Father, we thank you that uh, this occurred, that your son started this wonderful ministry by coming into a synagogue and showing his power over the world of spirits. He called one to come out of a man, and he came out. And with authority, your son taught And it was because you have told him to to teach and to preach what he taught and preached. And so he did it. 
and we are so grateful. Bless us now as we just soak for a while, Lord, in the precious gift of your presence here with us and the word that you have for us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. I would imagine that some of you remember that little verse or a couple of verses um, that Peter used in his um, second letter that he wrote. And the words that were given shortly before the end of that uh, passage where he says, but I want you to note this. I want you to know this fact, uh, beloved, that with the Lord, a, a thousand years is as one day. And one day is as a thousand years. The Lord is not slow um, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm giving you that verse because I want, I would like to just share some enjoyment with you in walking through the way in which God has given us a promise and he kept that promise. And we're going to connect the, the giving and the kept by God's grace this morning. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord through Moses says, I am going to give your people a prophet like you, Moses, and he will speak to the people all that I command him. I'm giving to you to your people, another prophet, just like you, Moses, and he will speak all that I command him to say to those people. That was a promise that he made. If you take a look at a timeline, Moses lived at about 1500 B.C., 1500 B.C., that's, that's when Moses spoke this promise, when God gave that promise that he was going to one day keep. And just think of that timeline now, 1500 B.C., after Moses um, died and God then it says in the last part of Deuteronomy, uh, buried him, and nobody to this day has been able to find the place where Moses was buried, and that's an entirely different story that we'll get into some other day, perhaps. But at the end of that passage, the, the last verses of uh, 
of Deuteronomy, we read this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in the there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. That's now 1500 B.C., and so through the, through the chronological line of people that you have heard of and that you know, you have a wonderful great King David at about 1000 B.C., and you have uh, some prophets that come into that uh, line of people that you have heard of, like Jonah at 760 B.C. and Jeremiah at 627 B.C. And the time that Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was invaded by Assyria and destroyed, and, and that was... Um, that was at about 722 B.C. And then Judah was taken captive and uh, the people were taken into bondage around 586 B.C. And then we have some other dates along this line um, that people that you have uh, heard about, you probably didn't know when they lived, but they, they were along this chronological line, like a guy by the name of Socrates, who lived around 469 B.C., and Plato, 428 B.C., and uh, Aristotle, 384 B.C., Alexander the Great, 336 B.C., in the Maccabean period, and the conquest that Rome finally had uh, in taking over Palestine, all on this, this timeline, 1500 B.C., that promise was given. And all of these, these wonderful, marvelous, and not-so-marvelous men and issues, experiences occurred and that promise was hanging in the, in the wind. It had not been fulfilled. 1500 B.C. We're now down to 0 B.C. Because one came into this world by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Little baby. And that man, that Jesus was to grow up and in about A.D. 30 begin a three, three-and-a-half-year ministry that changed the entire direction of human history. So important has he been to this entire chronological picture of the movement of God dealing with human beings and dealing today with you and with me. So he came and he grew and in about 30 A.D. 
Jesus began his ministry, and we see him one day entering into a synagogue in a little town by the name of Capernaum. And he began to teach the people. And, and as soon as he began to teach, Mark gives this feeling in, in the way in which he, he uh, uh, centers this issue. They, the people were absolutely astonished at his teaching. He taught with authority. They hadn't heard this. Had they actually gone back to take a look, they would not have heard this kind of authority given since 1500 B.C. When it was spoken by a man by the name of Moses, and Moses was called the friend of God. And now Jesus was teaching, and they couldn't quite put all of the pieces together. Where in the world did he get this authority to preach and teach like he was preaching and teaching? He was talking about the way in which God was going to save this, uh, this nation to the people to repent and believe to believe? To believe. To, to believe in what? To believe in the coming Messiah, and they didn't understand, therefore, that Jesus, in essence, was talking, teaching, preaching about himself. That gives one authority to teach and to preach about what he himself, that he knew he was going to fulfill on behalf of those people. And the people could not quite understand that. But somebody in that synagogue knew. There was a guy in that synagogue and I would imagine that guy was rather well known to the people uh, in Capernaum. I would imagine that he was in that synagogue every Sabbath day. It wasn't just an accidental moment that he appeared at the same time that Jesus appeared. I think he was just one of the guys in the church. But he was a different guy. And during these last months, I suppose that he began manifesting some kind of strange things, perhaps. Maybe he was talking a little differently. Maybe he was, I don't know what he was doing, but he didn't know all that was going on in himself either. But the demon did. The demon knew what he was doing, and the demon was probably, as, as long as he didn't have anybody to disturb him, he was very quiet. But when there was somebody to disturb him, you see, the demon heard Jesus also 
speaking with authority. And he had authority over that demonic world. And so all of a sudden, this demon woke up and he began to chatter. And he said, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, be silent and come out of him. Now, it says then that the demon, obeying the the voice of Jesus, came out of him, convulsed him. Do you know what happens when somebody convulses? Quite often, they're just vomiting, aren't they? That's one of the manifestations of a good convulsion. And so this man began to vomit out of himself something. And he wasn't quite sure of what that thing was. But yet there was a sense in which this thing began to scream and, 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 and almost shriek coming out of this guy so that everybody in the synagogue obviously knew what was happening. And so did the guy that the, demo, that the demon had been, had been um, uh, inhabiting. And then the guy was all of a sudden very quiet. And he was composed, but there was an intensity about him that was um, remarkable. And he was trying to figure out what in the world had happened to him during these last five to ten minutes. What was it? And here was, here was this man who was standing right here. He was, the man was still talking to the people. And he was still teaching them. And here he was. And yet this demon had obeyed the voice of this man and had left. Who is this? Who is this? 1,500 years earlier, God had made a promise. And he's going to send to his people somebody like Moses. Well, somebody like Moses. I mean, Moses did some absolutely astonishing things. And at his voice, as you recall those those, those moments when he was pleading with Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And Herod was resisting him. And so Herod, or Herod, uh, the, the, the Pharaoh, and his people paid the price for that resistance through plagues. On, at the word of Moses, plagues came. I was thinking about the, a little bit about this. And you know, Pharaoh uh, heard Moses speak a word 
to the waters around Egypt, and he made and he discovered that Pharaoh Pharaoh was looking at water that by the word of Moses had become blood. Wow. Quite a, quite a visual for Pharaoh. Jesus took water and made it into wine. Interesting. I don't know if it was supposed to be coincidental or not, but... One was really a sign of death, and one has been a sign of life. The difference is enormous between what Moses brought and who Jesus was and what he brought, because Jesus brought into our lives the wonderful invitation of God to live to live as the children of the Heavenly Father. He was preaching to these people and they heard that. And they, they, just, they just felt the power of that message of life that Jesus was preaching penetrate into their very being. And it, and it was not just something that you could hear politely and then just say, okay. I mean, this was, this was moving. It was so entirely different, and it was so powerfully real to me and me and me and me, as though God were speaking right into my being. That's what God can do through Jesus, his Son. And a few years later, I want you to see this. Now, for, this is very, it's, it's one of those things that I think is just so interesting in the Scripture because we don't usually put these pieces together to see how, how remarkable the difference that Jesus Christ made in this world of ours. So, there was a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. I can't go into the way in which the, he became the Lord's uh, uh, servant, but you do know that story. And so, I'm going to skip over getting into anything other than the fact that about 51 A.D., Paul came to a town that was absolutely obnoxiously corrupt. And it was called Capernaum. Okay? And he came into that, it was, I'm sorry, he, it was not Capernaum, it was Corinth. It was Corinth that he came into in 51 A.D. And he began preaching about this Jesus of Nazareth. And people began to believe and to trust in Jesus. 
And a lot of them came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. 51 AD, in fact, uh, Paul stayed there for a year and a half preaching about the newness of life that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And he had, uh, he had a, a wonderful ministry. It was a very dangerous ministry. At one point early in, in his ministry in, in Corinth, the Holy Spirit came to him in a dream and said, Look it, I, want you to, I, I don't want you to be afraid. Now, why in the world would God say to a guy, I don't want you to be afraid? Because that guy had every good reason to be very afraid. I have a lot of people in this town, the Holy Spirit told him. And so, be bold and speak the word that I have given to you. And, and for that year and a half, that's exactly what Paul did. And the church in Corinth grew in the midst of its obscenities and obnoxiousness and filth, morally speaking, that was the kind of tone in that community. A.D. 51 to 52. Now, take a look at that. How does that compare? When was Jesus crucified? When was he buried? When did he experience his resurrection? When did he uh, experience his ascension into heaven? What, approximately what date? Thirty-three A.D. Okay, take that now. Take thirty-three A.D. Now the people in Corinth are coming to the Savior. How many years later? How many? Twenty-two. Yep, somewhere along there. Uh, hey, that's not very long, is it? The message of Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished on our behalf, had happened about 18 to 20 years earlier. 18 to 20 years, and now the message is in Corinth. And Paul teaches in Corinth, and then he leaves Corinth and goes back and goes to, goes to Jerusalem uh, gives a little uh, uh, report to the people of Jerusalem, then goes down to Antioch, and then he begins his third missionary journey, and in 56 A.D., he is found in Ephesus. 56 A.D. When, did he, when was he preaching in Corinth? 51, 52 A.D.? How many years later? Yeah. Yeah, not very long, was it? Meanwhile, in Ephesus, Paul gets a message from uh, Chloe's people that there are some kind of bad things happening in Corinth among the Christians. Remember, the I mean, the Corinthian Christians at that time had to be pretty much all baby Christians. 
they had not had time to really mature, if they had begun hearing the gospel in about 51 A.D., and now Paul is writing to them in 56 A.D., that's not a whole lot of time, is it? Now, take a look at what he writes. He wrote that, that first epistle to them in order to address a series of problems that had been occurring in, in, in uh, Corinth. And he came to chapter 8, or we come to chapter 8, and he said, Now concerning the, the, uh, the food offered to idols. And then he takes a pause, and he says some other things about... Uh, now, a lot of us have knowledge about idols. And then he says something strange. He says, this knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Why is he saying knowledge puffs up? He is saying that because he's talking to a bunch of baby Christians. Baby Christians. What's, and what's happening with that knowledge that builds up? So then he gets back to talking about food offered to idols. And, and he says... Some, some interesting things. He said, you know that an idol doesn't exist. It has no life. You know that. Well, you who have knowledge knows that, and you who are just barely coming out of the, out of the influence of worshiping that idol over there, you are kind of knowing you're sort of knowing, but you're not quite sure because I've been worshiping that idol with my food that I've offered on the altar to that idol for a long time. And you're, you're, you're telling me, Paul, that it's not real. That idol really doesn't exist. He doesn't have any authority over me except that I'm not quite sure of that. And Paul says, you who are wise, you'd better take a close look at that. Because if you, with your knowledge, knowing that there is no reason to, to believe or to fear or to worship, for heaven's sakes, that idol, you can go ahead and you can eat meat to your heart's content that have been offered to that idol and it won't bother you a bit. But look at the next time that you go into that place where other people are eating and they're not sure of whether or not they should eat that or not because it's offered to an idol after all. That's the way it was butchered. And now you with great knowledge, comes into that building and you eat and your brother over here who is wobbling in his face sees you and he says, well, it must be okay to eat meat to worship this idol. And Paul says, by your action, you who are knowledgeable are damaging he uses the word destroying 
the life of your weaker brother. And so he concludes, and if that is the case, I don't care whether meat is good for me or not, I will not eat meat because it's destroying, the possibility of destroying or hurting my weaker brother. Is the issue meat offered to idols? And the answer to that is no. He is dealing with a problem that has grown up in the church in Corinth called pride. And I, I can see this so often in, in baby Christians who, who, who come into a new life in Jesus Christ, and it is so marvelous. It is, it is such a thrilling reality of being released from sin, of being given the opportunity to believe that it is okay for you to be just filled with joy and peace and love and long-suffering in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he gives to you in this new life that you have in him. And, and it becomes so wonderful that people kind of don't know how to really express themselves or hold on to it with other people and a lot of pride unknowingly, un. Un, almost unsuspectingly, can become a part of their expression with other people. You may have seen that in other people. You may not have. I've seen a lot of it through my ministry. And I think this is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we can then in, reinterpret it. We don't have meat offered to idols. What do we have? <laughs> what are gods around us that unintentionally maybe we find ourselves demonstrating that we're kind of worshiping them? What I want to get at is that this is the reality these are the real issues of what Jesus Christ has brought into our lives and the blessing that he has become for us as a promise that was given by his Heavenly Father now, 1,500 years ago. Well, now we'd better add 2,000 years to that. So now... We're at about 3,500 years later, the promise that God gave through Moses that he would bring into this world a prophet like you, Moses, and he brought that prophet into our lives as well, 3,500 years later. But that's only three and a half days as far as God days are concerned. So it's amazing, isn't it, that God in his marvelous wonderment brings all of these things of all of human history into his perspective just as easily as you handle the things in your life that, have, that, that occurred 
during the last three and a half days. God's day, 3,500 years. Your day, three and a half days. That says something about God, too. But what it really says to us is that God is a true promise keeper, a promise given for us 3,500 years ago and a promise kept as you have come to know, to love and to follow and to obey and to, to live as the center of your life, one called Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Amen. Now would you please stand and let's